In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you grow up in America, you hear a lot of narratives about our country that speak to our shared sense of character. For example, we're a nation of restless pioneers always striking out for greener pastures, or that we have a risk-taking entrepreneurial spirit that spurs innovation and economic growth. Well, my guest today argues that while these narratives may have been true at one point in American history, the statistics show that in recent decades, Americans have lost some of that pioneering, entrepreneurial, get-up-and-go attitude. Instead, we've become pretty complacent. His name is Tyler Cowan. He's an economist at George Mason University, writer at his blog, Marginal Revolution, and the author of several books. His latest is called The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. And today on the show, Tyler and I discuss the statistics that indicate Americans are losing their dynamism, that we're moving less and starting fewer businesses, as well as the effect this trend is having on our economy and culture. Tyler also provides some insight on what's causing this complacency, what to do to overcome it, and how it's likely leading us to an era of severe disruption. If you enjoyed my podcast with Neil Howe about the generational theory of history, you're going to love this episode. Tyler's ideas dovetail nicely with Howe's cyclical view of history. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash complacent, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Tyler Cowan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Long been a fan of your work. Uh, you got a new book out, The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. Um, and it's all about how you are, make the case that America has sort of lost its dynamism. Uh, we're not as dynamic as we once uh, were. Um, but before we get into that, what do you mean by dynamism? Because like, oftentimes when we hear that word, we think that's... In, Think of it as in positive terms, like everything's just fantastic and wonderful. But uh, when I, as I read your book, I kind of got the idea that that wasn't necessarily the case. Well, our rate of economic growth has been slower. We move across the country at much lower rates than in decades past. We're much more paranoid with our children. We won't let them play outside nearly as much. We take more medications to relieve our anxiety. If you look at each and every different sphere of American life, we even until recently protest much less against politics we don't like. We see that people are trying to dig in and play it safe and simply take fewer chances. Okay. And you, you argue that we've become a complacent class and that this complacent class is composed of different groups. It's not just middle class people or upper class or just poor. It's it cuts across the, the boards, but I'm curious, how does the complacent class manifest itself differently uh, amongst these different socioeconomic groups? Well, I identify three different groups. There are people who are really quite well off, the top 1% or 3%, and they, in a sense, have everything in life. And ultimately, their main interest is in preserving the status quo. 
and for all their intellectual talk about things being different in America, the actual urgency they feel in that regard has not been very high, perhaps at least until the last election. There's then the middle class, uh, which is increasingly uncomfortable, but their main strategy has been to dig themselves in, to make sure that no benefits are taken away from them, to make sure that no one builds a cheaper house next to theirs, just to try to cement in their lives. And they have a less dynamic perspective than middle-class Americans might have had in the 50s or 60s. And then there are lower income groups. You might think, well, how could they possibly be complacent? But if you compare those individuals, say, to the 1960s and how people behaved in terms of protest and simply not putting up with what the system was giving them, again, it's actually much more passive. So this is occurring across different socioeconomic classes. Okay. So then what are some of the, the big factors, like big picture factors that have led to the rise of this complacent class that you've identified? I think it's ultimately a historical story that we had really a great deal of dynamism in the 1960s and the early part of the 1970s. It was a very active America taking a lot of chances, putting a man on the moon in seven years. But the funny thing is, people don't actually like that. People very much want security. So we made a conscious decision as a nation to do anything possible to lower our crime rate, including putting a lot more people in jail. We made a conscious decision to make our cities nicer over time, even if that would mean they would grow less. We made a conscious decision our children would encounter essentially no risk, even if that means they wouldn't learn the same number of valuable lessons growing up. So I think it's a fundamental imperfection in human nature that people most of all want security, not liberty or dynamism. And there are some exceptions to that, but for the most part, that's us. Sure. So let's talk about some of these ways that you've seen the complacent class manifest itself. Uh, one of the more interesting aspects that I, I liked in your book, you talk about how the decline in America mobility. Uh, America has this sort of idea of itself as being a nation of pioneers, constantly on the move. Um, but you argue that we're not moving around as much. Uh, so can you give us an idea of how much geographic mobility has declined in the past few decades? Well, if you look at people crossing state lines and moving, that's fallen by about 50% since the peak of American mobility in the 1970s and the 1980s. So the old vision was, you know, maybe you lived in Mississippi and you would move up to Detroit to take a job uh, in an automobile plant. Or if that plant closed down, you might move to Houston to, you know, work on an oil rig. And uh, that's not the case anymore. We're much more a service sector economy, geographically different parts of this country. They look more alike. And the notion that a dentist will say, leave Columbus, Ohio for Denver, Colorado, because people there you know, need more of their teeth fixing, that's just not a significant reason to move. So people find where they want to live, and then they stay there. And um, I mean, why, why is that such a bad thing? I mean, couldn't that mean that people are settling down and establishing roots and deeply connected communities? That's all true. But here's a very important point, I think. It's rational for each and every individual. But when everyone does that at the societal level, our labor markets adjust much more slowly when there's a recession. And we saw that during the last recession. Uh, it's harder to start a new business because the influx of new labor to any one area is not that strong. It's harder for failing regions to adjust and move on. And we saw this uh, you know, in the Rust Belt right before the last election. 
So there's this overall decline of dynamism at the social level that hurts people. But of course, for every person, myself included, most of us live somewhere we like and we don't want to leave and moving's a big disruption. But there's something socially valuable about having a people who are somewhat more willing to move. Yeah, and this kind of connects to that idea of matching that you talk about too in the book, that uh, we've been become better at matching our personal preferences to everything in life, um, communities as well. But what are some other ways that uh, matching, like this increased ability to match our preferences, um, how has that decreased dynamism in America? Well, two areas would be music and then mating. So look at music. Whatever song I want to hear on YouTube or on Spotify, I can hear it right now in an instant for free. It sounds wonderful as a listener. It is wonderful. But it also means for the first time in history, people are paying much more attention to the back catalog of past music than to current music. So in my view, current musical creativity is declining. The audience interest isn't there. You're listening you know, to the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or Bon Jovi or whatever. So again, it's a kind of behavior that in the moment for the individual is rational, but for society as a whole has some bad long-run consequences. If you look at marriage, dating, and mating, it's much easier today to find someone of exactly your interests, your social class, your desired income level, and meet, date, and marry them. And again, that's led arguably to happier marriages, but it's also worsened the issue of income inequality. Because you now have, say, two law partners marrying each other. Uh, the resulting family is extremely wealthy. The children typically do very well. Uh, but that's also a barrier to upward mobility. Yeah, so like in the past, the lawyer might marry his secretary. Correct. Right. You know, he or she might be a very smart person, but wouldn't have that same income multiplier effect as what we're seeing today. Going, I think, connected to this decrease in mobility, you argue that this decrease in mobility has counterintuitively um, helped the reemergence of segregation um, in America. Um, so why is segregation on the rise again? Well, let's keep in mind first, there are several different kinds of segregation. The one that's gone up the most by far is what is called income segregation. That is, it used to be that uh, well-off and poor people lived quite close to each other. And that was very good for the mobility of poor Americans. There's a lot of evidence toward that conclusion. Now it's more likely the case that wealthy people live in Manhattan or San Francisco and poorer people live much further away. So there's less mixing. I think it makes us less dynamic and it makes American mobility more static. Now, racial segregation commands a lot of attention. That's a more complicated story. There are some notable ways in which racial segregation is going down. So suburbs are more mixed race than before. That's mostly a good thing. But if you look at American schools, very often they're more racially segregated. And if you look at, you know, the worst off areas, they too tend to be more rather than less racially segregated. So I would say on that metric, we're not seeing this kind of ongoing progress we had hoped for, you know, from the civil rights movement. It's it's pretty much stuck or in some ways even going in reverse. Is, but so, I mean, civil rights laws prohibit explicit discrimination um, and segregation. So how is that happening? I don't think it's explicit for the most part. It's happening through price and income. So people who have more money matched to the more expensive neighborhoods, those neighborhoods then limit the amount of high density residential construction, which makes it harder for people to rent cheaper apartments. And you have the most productive 
wealthiest parts of America, such as the Bay Area, just become, you know, impossibly expensive and difficult to afford. And other people live further away. They either have terrible commutes or they're simply locked out of that economic dynamism. And uh, besides income and race, I mean, another way that we're seeing segregation happening on a geographic level is even with uh, politics, right? Uh, Oh, that's correct. And this is why you have uh, Donald Trump, you know, losing the popular vote really by a fair amount, but winning the electoral college by also not not a landslide, as he sometimes claims, but, you know, he, he won the electoral college. And it's because Democrats are so clustered, say, in a relatively small number of densely populated states, New York, California, Hillary Clinton wins by large margins. And then you have less populated states, but a lot of them that tend to be more conservative or Trumpian or whatever you would call it. And that's a result of more political segregation. And uh, I don't mean this as a comment on any one candidate, but overall, I think it's unhealthy. It's a better America when you have more Republicans and Democrats living right next door to each other. And you see it also across marriage. Democrats and Republicans don't want to marry each other anymore. That kind of segues to the other idea that you argue that we've become um, complacent in our politics as well. And perhaps this geographic segregation along political ideologies um, is contributing to that gridlock that we've seen uh, in our government in the past few decades. Absolutely. So Congress doesn't get problems solved. Americans online, they're nastier to each other than they used to be. The sense of a common purpose is weakened. And the idea that either Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump was somehow, you know, a fundamentally illegitimate force, uh, to me, those are unhealthy developments, no matter what you think of the particular candidates. More and more Americans think the people who disagree with them are immoral. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. And how else has our political system become complacent, where we emphasize safety, security over volatility and dynamism? Well, the most static part of the budget is what we spend on entitlements, social security, Medicare, Medicaid. And I'm not trying to make an argument that those are necessarily bad expenditures, but over time they take up a higher and higher percentage of the federal budget because we're aging and because healthcare costs are going up. So in terms of investing money for research and development or new projects or revitalizing infrastructure or the the current day equivalent of sending a man to the moon, there's basically no money for those things. 
And I find it worrying that in percentage terms, we're spending more and more on being safe and less and less on being dynamic. That's a kind of fiscal lock-in. Right, right. So yeah, n- neither Republicans or Democrats will touch Social Security or Medicaid or those things. That's correct. And the, the only question is how much more will we spend? And even under President Obama, uh, the projected budgets for discretionary spending were basically slated to be going down over time. So let's turn our uh, attention to business. Uh, in America, we again, we have this idea that we're entrepreneurial, we're, uh, you know, businesses are always starting up. And we have this idea, I mean, we're always hearing about these tech, tech disruptors that are coming out of Silicon Valley. So there's an impression that we still have that entrepreneurial uh, dynamism. But you make the case that we're not. Um, So what are some of the statistics out there about declining entrepreneurship in America? Well, I would stress first, we do have some of the dynamism. And the main place you see it is in Silicon Valley. That has been a very productive sector. It's changed our lives in some significant ways. And that's great. The problem is that most of the American economy isn't like that. So if you look at most of the service sector economy, which is about 80% of GDP, in most of it, measured rates of productivity growth are barely above zero. You look at healthcare, you look at education, you look at the efficiency of our government. Those are hard to measure, but it doesn't seem they're making big gains. In some regards, they're going backwards. They're becoming more and more expensive. And we're at best getting these modest gains. Most of life is not like Moore's Law and the iPhone. That's America's dynamic sector. Our long-run hope is that tech seeps into everything and brings back an, you know, a new glory time of economic growth of 4%. But that's pretty far away. Three out of our last four decades, you know, we haven't managed productivity growth of much beyond something like 1% per year. And I mean, why are Americans starting fewer and fewer businesses? Is it just more expensive or harder to succeed? What's going on there? I think it's a number of reasons all at once. So startups, for all the publicity they receive, As a percentage of overall business, that has been going down in this country since the 1980s, every single decade going down. I think some of it is in a lot of sectors, you have a winner-take-all effect, where, say, in retail, there are fewer, you know, small, cute little niche businesses and chains are more significant. That's part of it. Part of it is the burden of regulation on businesses higher and large businesses can cope with that better than small businesses. And then I think another part is this ineffable psychological loss in America that we are more complacent and less dynamic. So all three of those at once, you end up with a business climate that is outside of the Bay Area, for the most part, pretty static. Yeah. And you also argue that, you know, when people do start businesses in America, they're not that ambitious with them. You're just seeing a lot of, you know, app companies or lifestyle companies. You're not seeing people trying to, you know, invent the next light bulb. Um, So, I mean, why have American entrepreneurs lost that desire to create, you know, life-changing businesses? Well, it's hard to do, of course. And again, we have had some life-changing businesses, but oddly, some of them make us more complacent. So if you look at Silicon Valley, you look at something like Facebook, well, we're better connected to friends. It's improving how we use our leisure time. I mean, that is something that's wonderful, but it's not feeding into the rest of the real economy the way the Industrial Revolution or the mechanical revolutions of the first part of the 20th century did, where you have just a complete onslaught of everything changing at once. If you compare American life in, say, 1900 to 1950, 
everything has changed. Electricity, running water, radio, the automobile, everything's different. If you compare our last 50 years, which I've witnessed personally, other than computers, you know, most of the stuff is the same. My car is a little safer, a little nicer. I'm still driving a car. I'm still cooking, you know, basically in a 1950s kitchen. The physical stuff of my personal universe, computers aside, has not changed much in 50 years. Right. And that I, going back to the idea that these new Silicon Valley startups, they increase complacency. Like a lot of the, the technology that they're developing is just increasing matching, like matching preferences um, better, right? Talking about Spotify. That's right. So I can buy a better antiques collection because of eBay for instance, or match to my high school friends better because of Facebook. And again, those are real gains, but it's mostly about leisure time and not making our whole economy more productive in a broad-based way. Not yet, at least. Right. So uh, the complacent class, we were putting a premium on safety, stability, and comfort. But why is that bad in the long run? Well, here's the thing. In the long run, someone has to pay the bills. Personally, a lot of us have debts. Our government socially has significant debt and pension liabilities, unfunded liabilities. And the way we're going to pay all that off is by being dynamic. And if we're not sufficiently dynamic, a crunch will come and there will be a societal crisis and people will speak up because they're not seeing enough gains. They're not expecting to be better off than their parents. And I think we're essentially at this point already where people have realized what we're doing isn't working. We've maybe made some hasty, you know, decisions in terms of how we might try to fix that. Uh, but you can't just stay on a track of no change for your whole life, either individually or socially. It's asking for trouble. You'll end up getting bigger changes that you can't control at all. Right, right. Um, so you need like, so it's good to have, you know, a bit of instability all the time instead of a lot of stability, all instability all at once due to your trying to control volatility. That's right. The greater wisdom is in realizing you cannot control all risk and accepting some and learning how to manage it rather than pushing all of it out the door. So you you, you think you're seeing signs of the age of complacency, complacency coming to an end. I mean, what are some of those signs that you're seeing? Well, if you look at the uh, few weeks right after the inauguration of Trump, we saw a level of public protest in this country we basically had not seen since the early 1970s. I think that's the single biggest indicator. And again, it's not a question of whether you're for or against, simply that the response and the urgency of it uh, was so strong and so immediate. And I think now in this country, there is a realization we cannot stay on our previous track. Uh, the wealth won't be there forever. Mentally, psychologically, I think in the last two years, people have very much flipped. And I think we're in for a new age of turmoil, a bit like parts of the 1960s. It will be painful. We'll hate it. But ultimately, I think in the longer run, it will regenerate our vitality. And so, I mean, what's your hunch? I mean, it seems at the end of the book, you kind of you argue for this sort of a generational or um, cyclical idea of history. So, you go through these bouts of stability, and then there's instability. Um, I mean, what's your hunch? Um, what the next twenty or thirty years are going to be like? I think they'll be, in some ways, quite a bit like the 1960s and early 70s. A lot of turmoil possibly a foreign war that becomes unpopular, very high amounts of protest and polarization, racial and segregation issues re-emerging, except we're going to run that experiment over with information technology, which makes response times much quicker, 
the news cycle more accelerated. And that to me is dangerous because last time we, we did this in the 60s and 70s, we came out of it fine. The 80s and 90s are a great era of American revitalization. And I do think we'll see that again, but we're running a higher risk because with Twitter and Facebook, you know, fake news is accelerated very quickly. Uh, there's a lot more propaganda. There's a lot more surveillance. So we'll see how it goes this time around. We'll see how it goes. And and do you think we're doomed to uh, just repeat this cycle over and over? Let's say we go through this next crisis and we get back on, you know, a, a, to a road of stability. Well, are we just going to sow the seeds for another era of, you know, great turmoil? Absolutely. We'll dig in again and want to be safe. I would say today, in terms of age, there are so many Americans who basically, as mature adults, only saw the 80s, 90s, and what came after that. And they expect things are always going to be nice. The 80s and 90s were mostly great decades for America. But if you look at the longer run of American history, whether it's the age of Andrew Jackson, or the Civil War, or the fights over civil rights, or the problems of the 1930s, or you know the protests and riots of the 60s, that's not what this country is. There are periodic times of calm, and different forms of chaos have always reemerged. And the people who grew up just seeing 80s and 90s, I don't think they've internalized that. They see it in the history books. They don't yet get that it's real, and they're starting to see it. And for a lot of them, it's very scary. Definitely. So someone who's listening to this, they're, they're thinking, okay, uh, America's becoming more, more complacent. I don't want to be complacent. Um, how can people thrive in the age of complacency? Well, one thing you can do is just look at your immediate friends, spouse, and neighborhood. And ask yourself, <clears throat> who am I surrounding myself with? Are they just people who are like I am? Or am I doing something, you know, in an environment with truly diverse peers? And I don't just mean ethnically or racially diverse, but people who are really different from you. And just ask yourself that hard question. And, you know, the answers will vary for different people. But see what you might do to change that. Talk more to people you disagree with. Uh, you know, think more, what chances might you take? I think most of us have a kind of status quo bias in life. There's one experiment that was run where people came to the researchers with big decisions and the researchers just flipped a coin for people and half of them were told to make a change. And actually most of the people who made the change were happy afterwards, but they might not have done it on their own. So think more like that. Overcome your own status quo bias. Right. And is this some, where some of your ideas um, you laid out in Average is Over come in as well? Yes. You know, my book Average is Over, it talks about automation and the new age of smart machines and how it's changing uh, American jobs. I think that's showing, you know, why it was the older system was slowing down for so many people. That unless you're really good at working with computers in some way, it's harder and harder to make a good living and see your wage increase over time. And unfortunately, I don't think any more than 15 or 20 percent of this country is really good at working with computers. So we've seen a lot of real wage stagnation for many groups. Yeah, I saw um, there's an article that's been going around lately about um, making the push for coding being the new blue collar job, which I thought was interesting. I mean, that's fine. But, you know, not that many people can code. And over time, machines will code on their own. And coding is relatively easily outsourced to foreigners. So, the, you know, the... The really good jobs are for people who integrate the information world and the physical world and the world of the people they work with. And that requires a lot of different skills. It's not that easy. Yeah, a lot of different soft skills. And hard skills. You need to bring them together. Well, Tyler, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, they can just Google my name, Tyler Cowan, Complacent Class. They can buy the book at Barnes & Noble on Amazon. 
I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Tyler Cowen. I write a blog called Marginal Revolution. But just start with Google, my name, and the phrase complacent class. Fantastic. Well, Tyler Cowen, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Tyler Cowen. He is the author of the book, The Complacent Class. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about Tyler's work at marginalrevolution.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash complacent, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. As always, I thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.